Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 18 as we uh, continue really in looking at the very last leg of Paul's second missionary journey. We'll be looking at uh, Acts chapter 18 verses 19 through 21 and I'll actually begin reading in verse 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And as I read the Word of God, please give careful attention to His Holy Word. Verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That is, Priscilla and Aquila. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And thus concludes the second missionary journey. You know, the Christian life can be described in many different ways. And one of the ways to describe the Christian life would be this. That it is the maintaining of a set of biblical principles in our mind which when activated by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a maintaining of a set of biblical principles in our mind, which when activated by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms us into the image of Christ. So really, the Christian life is really living in light of biblical truth. That every day we need to bring to mind certain biblical principles. Now, those principles may change based upon what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with, what our circumstances are. But sanctification in the Christian life is taking those biblical truths and letting them permeate our minds so that when the Spirit of God takes that truth, He transforms us by the power of the Spirit by the power of the Word, into men and women of God who reflect Christ more powerfully in the world in which we live. If that is the case, one of those biblical principles that we should live with each and every day is this. Walk humbly with your God. Very simply stated, walk humbly with your God. We actually find this in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, when the prophet says that he has told you, O man, he being God, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So it is part of the Christian life that each and every day, we seek to walk humbly with our God. 
walk humbly before the God whom we worship. And the reason why I think that's so powerful is that we see that reflected in Paul's attitude in the passage which we just read. He has arrived in Ephesus, we are told. And uh, he came to Ephesus, verse 19. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. He goes into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay longer, verse 20. But he did not consent. Probably because we saw last week he was needing to make his way to Jerusalem to consummate the vow that he made when he cut his hair in Centria. So he needs to go to Jerusalem to consummate that vow. So he's not going to stay in Ephesus. Ephesus was a prime city for ministry. And actually, it's going to be the, the main uh, stopping point in his third missionary journey. He'll come back to Ephesus and stay several years there. But he arrives, he goes into the synagogue, he preaches. Apparently, the Lord begins to open their hearts. They want to hear more. They want Paul to stay longer. Verse 20, but he does not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He walked humbly with his God. In other words, all of his future plans, all of his desires to, to come back to Ephesus and minister, he mentally, spiritually, biblically subjected to the overriding will of Almighty God. That's walking humbly with your God. I'll come back if God wills it. I don't know if God will will me to come back or not. But if I can, I will, if God wills it. So he was walking humbly, subjecting all of his future plans to the will of God. Now this is not just an isolated expression of Paul's bowing before the will of Almighty God. We find it cropping up in his other writings. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.19, he writes to the believers at Corinth, but I will come to you if the Lord wills. Later on in the same letter, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. That is, if He wills. In his letter to the church at Rome, he says, you're always in my prayers, making requests that perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. I want to come to you. I hope to come to you. And by the will of God, if God ordains it, if God wills it, I will come to you. But he's living in light of being consciously always aware of God's overriding sovereign will. Later on in Romans 15, he says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. Acknowledging again that it was by God's will that He would go there and He would find refreshing rest in your company by the will of God, if God wills it. In Philippians 2, he writes, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And this phrase, in the Lord Jesus, is shorthand for by the will of the Lord Jesus. By the purpose and sovereign plan of the Lord Jesus, I will send Timothy to you. And James shares the same sentiment. He said, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Even James is very mindful that every aspect of our future, every aspect of our plans, every aspect of what we hope to do is all contingent upon the overriding sovereign will of Almighty God. The author of Hebrews has the same mindset. And this we will do, that is, we will progress in the things of God if God permits, if God wills. Even sanctification is under the mighty, almighty hand of God. And Peter would agree. He says, For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Even our suffering is ultimately determined by the sovereign will of God. If God should will it so. So we find that the Apostle Paul is reflecting one of those basic, fundamental, biblical attitudes, principles that we should have and that we should live with on a daily basis to walk humbly with our God. To acknowledge His sovereignty, His controlling providence, which was our theme of our worship earlier, and to acknowledge that we are totally dependent upon God's sovereign will for our future plans. So that it is wise and prudent and necessary for every believer to subject all of our plans consciously and deliberately to the wisdom and control of our Heavenly Father. To do otherwise is to not walk humbly before your God, but to walk arrogantly against your God. That in some way thinking that you can control your future And that is not a sanctifying mindset. That is an unsanctifying mindset. So that Paul is teaching us by example that whenever we look to the future, we subject all things to His will. If God wills, I'll come back to you at Ephesus and minister to you. And that is a very sanctifying mind. The Scriptures, I think, are full of this type of attitude of walking humbly with our God. For example, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs is Proverbs 16, verse 9. That the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I think what's so instructive about this verse is that the mind of man plans his way. That that is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Lord is the one who actually directs His steps. You may plan to go this way, but God may direct your steps that way. And in all of this, we are being taught in Proverbs 16.9 that God's will is overruling. That God's will can cancel out and annul our plans. That God's will always trumps our will. But to keep in mind also in light of this that God's ways are always higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His plans and His ways are always better than our plans and our ways. So the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The second verse I think is also very helpful. Proverbs 20 verse 24. But man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And what's important to understand about this scripture 
is that our steps, our futures are ordained by God. They are determined by God. They are directed by God. And oftentimes, we don't understand His will, His plan, His purpose. And so the Solomon humbly acknowledges, how then can we understand our way or His way? God orders our steps. He directs our futures. Oftentimes in a way that we don't want to go or in a way that we didn't plan on going, but God has directed and ordained our steps. And it leaves us with confusion. It leaves us with frustration. It puzzles us. It bewilders us. Because we don't understand it. And the author of Scripture is saying, be ready for that. God has ordained your steps and you won't understand what He's doing. And again, that's because infinite wisdom is often an enigma to a finite mind. And God's mind and wisdom is infinite. His plan for you comes out of an infinite wisdom that our finite minds simply cannot comprehend or understand. It'd be like trying to explain Einstein's theory of relativity to a four-year-old child. Good luck. I mean, I've tried to look at some of it and I don't have a clue. I mean, they talk about you know, gravity bending space and all this kind of stuff or whatever it is. I mean, it's just, it quickly goes a thousand miles over my head. But God's mind is infinitely greater than Einstein's. And His plan comes to you to direct your steps on a day in and day out basis based upon that infinite plan that God has for you. And we will not understand it. We will be confused, puzzled, bewildered, and we should not we should expect that how then can man understand his way and that's why i think we must humbly relinquish our desire to understand the ways of god and not be frustrated when you don't understand well why did that happen god why did you bring this circumstance you will not understand it And we must come to the place of walking humbly with our God to say, Lord, if You don't reveal the answer to me, I understand. And Lord, I can live with not knowing. And I can live with the confusion. And I can live with the bewilderment. Because even though I don't understand Your ways, You understand them. And that's all I need to know. And I will trust You. So we must humbly relinquish our desire to understand the ways of God for it to make sense to us. Because oftentimes it will not. And that's why we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, if you will, as we kind of develop and look at uh, Paul's walking humbly with God and telling the saints at Ephesus that I will come back to you if God wills, Let's uh, look at another passage that develops that even further. So turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 4. This is a verse that I alluded to earlier, momentarily. But look at James chapter 4 with me for just a moment. Verses 13 through 17. 
James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. James is trying to teach us to walk humbly with God in this passage as well. And look how he says it. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Several things here. What James is, is not saying is that he's not saying that it's wrong to have aspirations or goals or strong desires for achievement. He's not saying that. He is saying that we need to learn to subject all of our goals, all of our plans to the overriding will of Almighty God. Now look at this as it develops in verse 13. Look at the plan. Come now you say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That plan is a good plan. Nothing wrong with the plan itself. It's well thought out. It's a detailed plan. Nothing wrong with the plan. And look how involved and detailed it is. It involves when. He says, today or tomorrow. So he's planned out when he's going to, to uh, implement his plan. He deals with where he's going to go to such and such a city. So he's got the time of it and the place of it all planned out. He also says for how long he plans to be there. He'll spend a year there, we're told in verse 13. He's also planning out what he's going to do when he gets there. He's going to engage in business. He's also uh, explaining the, the why, the purpose for why he's going to engage in business, and that's to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with making a profit, unless you're a Marxist. You know, Marxism, which is kind of flooded into our, our uh, society and our nation, kind of with leaps and bounds, says that all profit is really evil because it takes and steals away the wages from the common worker. That's Marxism. And sadly, politics are moving in our country towards Marxism. And there's that class warfare. That's, that's, all that's Marxism. There's nothing wrong with profit. You don't make a profit, you can't hire new people, you can't develop new products, you can't invest in research and development if you don't have a profit. If you got to have a profit. Profit is good. The Bible does not condemn it. There's nothing wrong with this plan that this guy has at all. The only thing that's wrong with it is that it's, uh, the, the assumption is bad. The assumption is faulty. Because the man assumes that his plan is going to be realized without a hitch. He presumes that his plan is under his control and that it will come to pass. And that's what we call the sin of presumption. We find that in Psalm 19 verse 13. So he makes a plan in verse 13. 
And yet, there are three failures to this plan. The first one we find in verse 14, there's a failure to realize how brief life can be. James says, yet you do not know, verse 14, what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See, the guy made a plan boldly. He laid it all out. He thought through it very well. He had all of his bases covered. He knows exactly when he's going to go. He knows exactly where he's going to go. He knows for how long he's going to go. He knows what he's going to do when he gets there and the reason for why he's going to make the profit. But you see, he failed to realize that he may not even be alive tomorrow. It's a very arrogant plan. Scriptures often remind us of just how brief life can be. For example, in Isaiah 40, verse 6 and 7, we're told that all flesh is like grass and all of its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. That's human life. The grass withers and the flower fades. And it can fade quickly. That's the nature of human life. It's brief at best. Job tells us that our life is but a breath. It's like a fleeting shadow that goes across the road and it's there and then it's gone. And in many ways, the Scripture tells us that life is very, very brief. In verse 14, James says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. A vapor, that which takes a form quickly and then quickly fades away. Like a breath on a cold morning. Like the morning fog that lifts as the sun rises. Or like the steam rising from your tea kettle that you you see it for a moment and then it's just immediately disappearing, fading away. That's what life is like. Our life is a tiny little speck of time between two vast eternities. And by nature... Part of what sin has done, our depravity has done, is to make us forget how brief life really is. Psalm 49 verse 11 expresses the sinful nature of man that we forget that. We don't think about that. In Psalm 49 11 it says, "...of the wicked their inner thought is that their houses are forever." And their dwelling places to all generations. We just naturally just don't think about death. We don't think about the brevity of life. We just think we're just going to live on. And that's the guilty part of this man in in James chapter 4. He doesn't realize how brief his life might be. Same thing with Luke 12 with that rich landowner that had the bumper crop. And he said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. That's the sin of presumption. He doesn't know that. He can't know that. But he's presuming that he does. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. He'll live to a long old life. That's the sin of presumption. Now, James is not saying in this passage that because life is 
brief that we should stop planning or stop working or stop living our lives so that we can contribute to society and hopefully make things better. He's not, he's not denying any of that. But what we do learn is that we don't control anything in the future. Not the length of our life, not the circumstances of our life. That we don't control time. Time is out of our control. It's interesting, the founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates, a man who has amassed billions in personal wealth, was once asked what one thing he, he would wish for in life. Think of what he, what he might have answered. His answer was more time. And that's the one thing in life that not even the wealthiest person alive can control. You cannot control your time. One must make the best use of the time that we have, but no one knows how much time they are allotted. Who would have known that just a few weeks ago that the coronavirus would cause such a worldwide chaos that it's caused? where people, some have died from it. Plans have been disrupted. I mean, just all of the the effects, the plans that have changed because of the coronavirus. We just don't know what the future holds. We can't control it. And I think one of the, the most deadliest applications of this general mentality of man is to think that we're going to live a long life and not realize the brevity of life is when people come to think about their relationship with God. Many deceive themselves into thinking that, well, I know that religion is important. I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Maybe some might think that. But after all, I've got a lot of living to do, and I've got a lot of things I want to do first, and so later on in my life, then I'll consider becoming a Christian. And that is a deadly oversight. One preacher advised people to repent only on the day before their death. A preacher actually said that. You only need to repent on the day before your death. But then he was quick to say, you don't know the day of your death. It might be tomorrow. Which means you need to repent today. Because you don't know what your days hold in store for you. God told that rich man who only wanted to build bigger barns and thought that he would live to a ripe old age, what did He say to that man? You fool! For this very night your soul is required of you. You fool! Here you made all these plans about your future. Thinking of all that you're going to do and all the comfort and all the joy and all the ease and all the retirement and all the wonderful things that you have planned out for your future and you don't know that your soul is required from you tonight. Called him a fool. God called him a fool. Are you ready if you died tonight? Are you ready for your soul to be cast into eternity? I mean, seriously, who knows what tomorrow holds? Who knows how many of us, if any of us, might not awake from sleep in the morning? You don't know that. 
No one knows that. That's why you need to be ready for your soul to be launched into eternity. And when it's launched into eternity, your soul, when we die, will either go to heaven or it will go to hell. Are you ready for your soul to be launched into eternity if today was your last day? And that is why we need to recognize the brevity of life that no one knows how many days we may have left to understand that when you die, you will stand before a holy God. And without Jesus Christ and His shed blood, which, which alone can wash you from your sins and forgive you of all of your sins, if you have not come and repented to Him and trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sins, then you will be cast into hell. And that could be sooner than you think. Because you do not know the length of your days. It is a sin of presumption to think that you do. The gospel application of these words are powerful. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And what a great encouragement to realize that today is the day of salvation. That today you can come to Jesus Christ. You can acknowledge your sin. That you are worthy of His judgment. But you can receive the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. If you but come to Him today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time for you to come and be saved. Don't delay it. Don't put it off. Because you don't know that you'll be here on that future day. Come today. Come to Me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that invitation is for you today. Come today to Christ. Well, the first failure of this man who planned to go to another city and engage in business for a year and make a profit was his failure to see the brevity of man's life. The second failure in verse 15 is just that he's he fails to see the sovereignty of God. It says instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills. In other words, he failed to realize that his, the entirety of his life and his future were ultimately dependent upon the sovereignty of Almighty God. God controls our future, not us. And some hold God's providence in contempt by not thinking about that and bringing it to their thinking regularly. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. And notice that in our passage what James is instructing this this planner to do is to acknowledge God's sovereignty over both His life and His actions. Notice again verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. That's the first thing you've got to acknowledge. If the Lord wills, I will live tomorrow. If the Lord wills that we must acknowledge that the length of our days are in the hands of Almighty God. 
They're not in and determined by the actuary tables of the life insurance company. They're not determined by your genes inherited from your parents. They're not determined by your plans or your desires or the level of your health care or the amount of vitamins and minerals that you take. It's ultimately in the hands of God. It's not that all those other things aren't good and, and important. But ultimately, our days are numbered by God. And the coronavirus is not going to steal one day from anybody apart from God's will. In Job chapter 14, verse 5, Job tells us, speaking of man, that his days are determined. Your days are determined by God, not by you, but by God. Your days are determined. The number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. You cannot live a day longer than the days that have been determined for you, and you cannot live a day shorter than the days that have been determined for you. There is no disaster. There's no car accident. There's no disease. There's nothing that will rob you of one day of your life that God has not already predestined and determined for each and every one of us. Now I find great comfort in that. And I think you do too. This is not saying that we're to be careless with our health or careless with our life. But to acknowledge by faith that our time on this earth is governed and determined and guided by the hand of God. So walk humbly with your God. Because God is the one who will determine if you live or if you die ultimately. That's what he's saying in verse 15. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. See, that's ultimately God's will, God's purpose, God's plan for our life. But then he adds another aspect to that in verse 15. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So that our actions, our plans are also determined by God. All of our achievements, all of our successes, all of our profits are ultimately governed by God. All of our Financial resources are determined by God. And that's why it's such a sin whenever we think that no, that is something I produced or I earned in and of myself. And it's interesting that when uh, Moses and the nation of Israel were uh, about ready to cross the Jordan River to go into the land of Canaan and then they would wipe out the nations and live in their land and enjoy all the produce of the land, he says, when you get there, you need to be very careful that you're not arrogant in thinking that all the wealth and all the, all the prosperity that you will enjoy in the land is, is because of what you have done. And Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, otherwise you will say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So in other words, we need to be mindful that if God wills, we will, go, we will live, number one. Number two, 
we will do this or that. We will go to that city, stay for a year, engage in business and make a profit if God wills. That's the thing to remember. And James says again, this should be something we say in verse 15. You say, well, do I always have to say it every time I make a plan? Well, uh, it may get a little bit monotonous if you do it like every sentence that you say, but you ought to be thinking it. We ought to be thinking it regularly. I will do this. I'll, I'll make this plan. I'll, I'll accomplish that if God wills. If God wills. And not only if you say it verbally, is this a powerful reminder to yourself to walk humbly with your God and subject all of your plans to the sovereign hand of God, but it's also a witness to other people. That you know that your life, your future, your plans are dependent upon God and not anything else. If God wills it, it will happen. If God doesn't will it, I don't care what you do, it won't happen. Because God is in control. God is sovereign. So our mind does matter and our speech does matter. And when you talk about your plans, when you talk about your future, we should keep this biblical truth in the uppermost part of our mind. So the first failure of this man who made this plan was he he did not take into account the brevity of life. Secondly, he did not take into account the sovereignty of God. And thirdly, he didn't, he, his failure was not seeing just how evil and wicked his own arrogance is in the sight of God. Look at what he says in verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So here he's saying to this individual that their third great failure was they were arrogant in planning their future and not submitting it to the overriding, sovereign, overruling will of Almighty God, which is better than your plan and will bring about good. You just you don't think that. You just arrogantly presume that you're going to accomplish your plan. Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And what the author, what James is saying in verse 16 is that what the man did in verse 13 was full of arrogance. He was boasting. He had no thought of submitting it and acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And as a result, his boasting is evil. It's evil because his pride is assuming that he can live independently from God and not walk humbly before God, acknowledging Him in all things. Those who make their plans without acknowledging God's sovereignty will live ultimately as practical atheists. And Christians can do this as well. We can forget about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, and we can become guilty also in effect of living our lives as practical atheists. Now, we're not atheists, but yet a lot of the ways we think and act, it's as if we're atheists because we forget God. We forget to walk humbly before God and acknowledge His sovereignty in all areas of our life. Such practical atheists 
who are arrogant and boasting and make their plans without the consideration of God's overriding will, think that they are God themselves who control their own destinies. They embrace a mentality reflected in that poem Invictus that I quote from time to time by William Ernest Henley, who in mocking Christ in the Bible said this, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And whenever we begin to think about the future and make plans without submitting them to the will of God, then that practical atheism is what is consuming our minds. And again, what a fool. To live our lives as if God is not on His throne is nothing but unadulterated pride and arrogance and God calls it evil. It's evil. Because He wants all of His children to acknowledge that He is on His throne and all of our plans are subject to His plan. And if we don't remember that, then we're going to be frustrated countless times. Now, Christ, of course, is the great example of walking humbly before your God, before His Father. He was God the Son, but He still walked humbly in His incarnation uh, to the will of the Father. We find this uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is wrestling with going to the cross. And basically, the terror of the cross was terrorizing his human mind and emotions so that he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but thy will be done. He was pleading with God that if there was another way to accomplish the Father's will, then please let Him do that and avoid the cross. But his heart was totally submissive to the will of the Father. But Father, if that is Your will, if there is no other option, then I willingly offer myself to do Your will. There is no rebellion against the will of God, but a total humble submission to the will of His Father. And He gives us our great model to how to walk humbly with our God. And this is the highest expression of faith to submit to the will of God. And I think even our prayers should be tempered by this. And again, as we talked about in Sunday school class, a lot of people uh, from other traditions will, will go along with the name it and claim it view or the blab it and grab it view that we just we basically just say what's going to happen and we just believe it and we just start marching forward as if we're going to bring it to pass. Well, that is really arrogant. And that is not the way Jesus teaches us to pray. Because even in facing His ordeal, He said, Lord, if there's a way to get around this, then I I would do that. But Lord, if this is the only way, then Your will be done. I offer myself to You. But He's living in humble submission to God's will. The benefits of walking humbly with our God of telling the church at Ephesus, yeah, I will come back if God wills. And all the other examples that we find in Scripture is that 
there, there will be a flood of, of sanctifying blessings that come into our soul. There will be great comfort in trusting God's will, especially when it short circuits or frustrates our own desires and plans. And this can happen at any time. You're driving down the street. You're late for work. You're pressed on time. You want to get there. And it's like you hit every red light. And then when it finally turns green, it sounds like people are just frozen in their positions in their car. No one's moving. But Lord, I would be to work on time. I don't want to be late. But but Lord, I know my plans are subject to Your plan and Your plan is always best. It's always better than my plan. And if you can begin to believe that, you can, you know, the road rage can be softened. The fear and anxiety can be quelched. We can have more of God's peace and more of His contentment. There can be a calm that can soothe our fears and soothe our anxieties. And this is what's really important, I think, because of all the coronavirus stuff that's out there is to know that God is sovereign over all of this. And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't act responsibly and act wisely to try to contain it and all that they're telling us to do. But I mean, there, there's, this, this, is, this has almost become like a hysteria of fear that is just sweeping around the world. And I think in our country, there's a political element that hasn't helped at all either. But it's to walk and to, to know that if, if my life, if my future is ultimately determined by God, then I can trust Him. That I know that His plan is better than my plan. That His plan is infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely in control. And I can trust Him. And I can walk with Him. And I can have His peace. And I can have His contentment. And I can know that God will bring good out of our trials and out of our disappointments. As we've already talked about, this coronavirus should be a great opportunity for the church to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are out there. People that are fearful to let them know that God is in control to do what is wise and best, but to know that God is in control and to point them to the Savior because they have a much greater threat awaiting them in the future than just the potential sickness or death from some virus. They're going to stand before Almighty God. And they need to be prepared for that day as well. Christ prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. And out of that great trial and submitting to God's will, out of that greatest evil act of crucifying the Son of God came the greatest good of all human history. That God can definitely bring good out of what He has ordained, even trials, even plagues. And you know, America as a country, my goodness, we're worse than Egypt. We deserve ten plague, far more than ten plagues that Egypt received. So it's a great opportunity, I think, for us to proclaim that God is sovereign on His throne and the Gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners to hear. Remember that God rules over our lives. This is part of the practical benefit of submitting to the will of God. God rules over our lives, not chance, not lady luck, not circumstances, not Satan, not your enemies, not disease, not death. God rules. 
And God has a master plan for each and every one of our lives. And it's known in detail only to Him. We can only trust. We can only walk by faith. So therefore, we must walk humbly with God, trusting in His goodness, His wisdom, and the sovereignty of His plan. So even though the stock market may drop like a rock, even though the economy may tank, and there may be a lot of financial suffering along with the health suffering, nevertheless, we know that our God is on His throne. And He's in control. You know, when I was in seminary, I had a, a, a one of the older men in uh, the church that I attended who was a stockbroker. And even back then on his computer, he would have that little ribbon at the bottom and there were numbers just going across constantly. You know, here's a symbol for a stock and then the price. And, and, and it's just hundreds and hundreds going across and thousands and thousands every day. Stocks going up, stocks going down. And he dealt with futures, and which is a very risky thing. But he told me one time that if he did not believe that every number that ran across his ticker tape every second, if he didn't believe that every number was predestined by God, he wouldn't be able to sleep at night. But because he believed that God was in control, Every night when he went home from work and the stock market closed and he went home, whether it was a great day or a chaotic day, like we've seen in our market, that God was in control. And that again enabled him to sleep at night. We need to marinate our minds in the sovereignty of God and to know that all of our future, all of our plans, all of our desires are subject to His all-controlling good will. I don't know if you've ever seen this D period, V period. I'll see it in letters sometimes. You can see it in the writings of the Puritans. On occasion, I've used it in some of my own correspondence. D, V. Well, that comes from a Latin, Deo Valente, which literally means God being willing or God willing. And I think this is no pious cliche, but this is what we need to tattoo. 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 <laughs> you can tattoo it too if you know what that means. You can etch it and stitch it and iron it and carve it and engrave it and nail it to the inside. Wallpaper it inside your mind. God willing. God being willing. I'll do this if the Lord wills. I'll do that if the Lord wills. I'll see it tomorrow if the Lord wills. I'll go to this city and stay there a year. Engage in business. Make a profit if God wills. To just be mindful that we need to walk humbly before God. And to bring this attitude into our work into our school, into our home, into our play, that we subject all things to the overriding, infinitely wise, good, sovereign will of God. We need to learn to take the short view of life, not the long view. Take the long view for planning. Take the short view for living. Because no one knows what tomorrow may bring. 
After all, that's why the Bible tells us that really we're just strangers and aliens passing through this, this life. Our citizenship is in heaven and we must see our greatest joy and fulfillment, our blessing ultimately coming from heaven and not from this world, not from this life, not from this earth. It should help us to let go of making this life an idol, making it all about me, all about my happiness, all about my pleasure, rather than making it all about Christ, which it should be. Every believer needs to learn to submit our futures to the governing will of God and walk humbly before Him. There's a boy and his father that uh, had gone to kind of a theme park. And there was a maze that had been set up and they decided to walk through it together. The walls were only four feet high. The little boy couldn't see over it. But the six foot tall father certainly could. So they started walking through this maze and the boy would take off. And of course, he would go in one direction and hit a dead end. He'd get frustrated and turn around and go to another uh, corridor and hit a dead end. Frustrated. And the father eventually began to say, well, why don't you go down this way? Because he could see the layout of the maze. He could see the way through to get out to the other end. And he began to gradually guide his son. The son would object for a while. Daddy, let me do this. Daddy, I can do this. And of course, he would get lost again and again and again. And the father would gently just say, no, go this way. That way is blocked. Go this way. And eventually, he guided his son all the way through the maze and they came out on the other side. And the little boy turned to his dad and he said, Daddy, why didn't you let me get myself through there. And he said, well, son, you you wouldn't have been able to because you were just getting lost over and over again. But see, I could see the beginning and I could see the end and I could see the right way to get through it all. And that's where you just needed to trust me. And there's a truth that we need to bring into our lives as we're living our life in a maze and we've got a long ways to go. Maybe, maybe it's not that long. We don't know. But the way to get through it all is to trust that our Father is guiding us and directing us. That His pathway is perfect. It may not be according to our plan. may not be what we want. But we have a Heavenly Father who is guiding us and directing us. And once a little boy heard his father's explanation, he said, well, Father, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought me through it. Safe out the other side. And that's the faith that we can have in our God. To walk humbly with our God. To know that He is in control. That He's guiding and directing. And that's one of the keys, I think, to the Christian life. If God wills, we will do this or we will do that. Well, may God help us to remember that. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and his humility, that whenever he made plans, he subjected them to the overriding, sovereign, infinitely good and wise plan of Almighty God. He walked humbly with his God. He submitted his life to the will of God. And Lord, guard our hearts 
from that insipid arrogance that has a tendency to come in that makes us practical atheists where we just think about life and we think about our future without taking into consideration that God's will may be totally different from ours and how that will protect us from the anger and the frustration and just the disappointments that we often experience when our plans don't materialize. But help us to trust in You and help us to walk humbly with You. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.